shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. In uh, Richland County, Ohio, is a place called Malabar Farm. It's a beautiful farm where uh, a writer named Louis Bromfield wrote. He had a study there. We, you, you can visit it, and his study has a huge desk. It's built in a big U-shape. Uh, and he wrote some beautiful books, Pleasant Valley, a beautiful book that he wrote about the Ohio countryside. But when the tour guide had us there, they said he never really produced anything at that desk. He did his writing over there. And when you look over in the corner of the room, there was a little card table with a manual typewriter. And he wrote all of his books over there in the corner on a manual typewriter. I like to write a little bit, so it always interests me to see where people write. Um, uh, George Grant is an acquaintance of mine. He has a little shed that's built out back of his house. It's adorable. He goes out in his little shed and he writes. I said to Lois, I like to have a little shed like that with a bell. You know, I could go out and write, and then when I ring my bell, you could bring me whatever I wanted. She said no. Um, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf wrote in the basement in a storage room on a, in an armchair. C.S. Lewis wore the same tweed jacket for decades, had a hole in the pocket where he stored his pipe. I hope I didn't just burst your non-tobacco bubble right there. Um, Wendell Berry is a writer from Kentucky, and he writes in a little house he calls the long-legged house built on, right on the bank of the river. John MacArthur is a pastor who writes a lot, and Al Mohler, they both insist you have to write with a fountain pen, but they have editors who write with you know, MacBooks. Uh, Margaret Clarkson is a hymn writer uh, who went with, to be with the Lord years ago, and she did most of her writing of her hymns in a little place she called a cottage that she called Innisfree, and it was in the Canadian Shield, and she had to take a boat to get there. And she wrote some of her most beautiful hymns that were used in the uh, InterVarsity missionary movement while she was in her little cottage called Innisfree, and they didn't even have electricity there. Jan Karen has written some beautiful novels. Maybe you read them. She quit her day job and moved to Blowing Rock, North Carolina, and took the money that she had and bought a very modest little cottage, and she had very little food, so her first book is all kinds, full of all kinds of gore, descriptions of gourmet food. I, I'm not going to talk about food today. Um, there was another writer who wrote in a trailer. He had a house trailer, and he didn't even have any money. He didn't have his own typewriter. His wife had to loan him a typewriter, and he would lock himself in the laundry room. He wrote his first novel, Locked locked in the laundry room of his trailer. He's done pretty well by himself. You might, you might know him. His name is Stephen King. If you read his stuff, don't admit it. You know, it's like <laughs> scary stuff. Me, I, I, write, I do most of my writing in the corner of our upstairs bedroom on a, a desk made of a century-old barn wood, and I, I, like to, I like to have it quiet up there. But the, the, but the writing that we're going to study today was written in the most unusual place. It was composed in one of the most 
unique and unusual places ever. We are going to study a psalm today. If you've been hanging around, you know that we're in a series of four messages taken from the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament. Look in the table of contents. Don't embarrass yourself trying to find that. Just look at the table of contents right now and then look up the book of Jonah and the house lights have come up just a tad so you can actually read your Bible there and, and you can look at Jonah chapter 2. What you're going to see in Jonah chapter 2 is that Jonah is, is composing a psalm or a song. He's composing it in the most unusual place. Now, you remember the story of Jonah the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, cry out against because her, because her sins have come up before me. And you know how the story goes, right? Jonah the prophet goes in the opposite direction. He goes all the way out to the Straits of Gibraltar in the Mediterranean, as far away as he can possibly get. He heads that way on a ship, but God sends a storm. This is what happens when you run from God. You run right into a storm. You remember how that's in Jonah 1. If you read it, if you, you're catching up, you can watch the video from last week or it's right there in your Bible. You can read it real fast while I'm talking. And, and what you'll see there is that the sailors, they're on this ship and they're in this storm. They're pagans. And they're like, why are we having this storm? They can tell they're seasoned mariners and they can tell this is a very unusual storm. They know it has something to do with God. And so they begin to cry out to their gods and they cast lots and they figure out that the storm is because of this guy, Jonah, who is where? Sleeping. He's sleeping. It's very tiring to run from God, I'm telling you. It's not easy to do that. So Jonah is sleeping. They wake him up and, and they say, what's this all about? And the, but eventually what happens is he just said, they say, cry out to your God. And he doesn't cry out to his God. They say, shouldn't you pray? And he doesn't pray. He doesn't cry out to God. In the midst of a storm, he doesn't cry out to God. How dumb is that, right? So what he suggests is, why don't you just throw me overboard? It's like, they throw him overboard. Bless you. They throw him overboard. They throw him overboard. And that's where, it was kind of like one of those kind of serial things. Like, that's where we stopped last week. He just gets tossed overboard. And we pick up the story in Jonah in chapter 1 and verse 17. And we're going to read what it says there, that little commentary in verse 17. And then we're going to read the first 9 and 10 verses of chapter 2. And what it is, is the, the, it's the psalm or the song that Jonah composes in the fish gut. Which is kind of weird. All right. You guys are just looking at me like, you heard that every day. Like, all right. So Jonah, you guys are a hard, hard audience. Um, Jonah, stay with me. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'm going to give you a little tidbit. Don't call it a whale. There's a New Testament translation whale, but there's a special Hebrew word for whale. It isn't used. There's a, this is a sea creature. This is a big fish. This is a sea monster of some kind. God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Is that good news or is that bad news? 
Good news. You're saying that if you get swallowed by a sea monster, that's good? It's better than drowning. Yeah. So chapter 2 and verse, <laughs> and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Okay, now Jonah's ready to pray. After he gets tossed in the deep end and swallowed by a sea monster, he goes, okay, I'll pray now. And so he prays out of the belly of the fish. And here comes the psalm. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. That's a word for the grave. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Come on now. (laughs) You got a weed turban going on there. Weeds are wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now the story gets even more fun. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah on the dry land. There, I said vomit in church. Is that good or bad? So the fish puked Jonah up on the dry land. Somebody, some kid in Sunday school one day said, what's the, what's the story of Jonah about? The kid was listening to the teacher, and he goes, I guess you can't keep a good man down. <laughs> That's not what it was about. Jonah was not a good, not a good man. But, but after he finally thought he was going to die, he finally, he cries out to the Lord. You ever had an experience of hitting bottom in life? You ever get yourself in a pickle? You ever play, any baseball players know what a pickle is? You ever get yourself in a pickle? You ever hit bottom? You ever do something stupid? You look like really smart people. Did you ever do something stupid and you ended up in a, in a bad place? It, or or did, did, ever, did anybody else ever mistreat you so bad that you felt like you got thrown overboard and swallowed by a sea monster? That's a bad day. I want to talk to you today from this text, from this psalm, about what to do when you hit bottom. What to do when you feel like the bottom has fallen out of your life. What, what to do when things aren't going very well. Whether that's your own fault, and this was Jonah's fault, or whether that's somebody else's fault. In the psalm of Jonah here, composed in his heart, in the belly of the fish, and probably written down somewhere later, I'm going to give you seven things. They are note takers. You're looking for seven things today. Swiftly, seven things swiftly. Um, what to do <laughs> when you hit the bottom. Talking to, uh, talking to a guy this week, and he, he's like, man, I haven't had a raise in years. 
They cut my benefits every year. I lay in bed at night and I think, what am I going to do about my kids' teeth? I'd really like to take my wife on a, a little trip for our anniversary, but I can't even afford to fix my kids' teeth. Or, or maybe it's like you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you the word you never wanted to hear about you. And the prognosis isn't really very good. And the bottom kind of falls out of your life. What do you do then? Or maybe the person that you thought was going to be your lifelong companion decides they're not going to be your lifelong companion. And now you face kind of loneliness and a sense of uh, pain and rejection that you never thought you would have to face. What do you, what do, you do then? when the bottom falls out of your life, whether it's your kids are hurting so bad you wish you could take their place but you can't, or your health is very questionable, or your finances are, pre are pressure on you, whatever things, and, and you may say, well, that's, that's not the case with me today. Well, you know, truth is, since we live in a fallen world, it's likely someday before the Lord comes back or you go to meet with him, you're going to have that experience that you're going to have a sense like the bottom fell out of your life, like you hit the bottom. I remember getting a call one day from my girl. She's just crying, just weeping. She, her husband's abusing her again. And dad, she says, I, I just, I don't know what to do. What should I do right now? And her husband is literally abusing her right then. And I said, get in the car and come home. And she puts her little kids in the car and she drives across three states with all of her stuff stuffed in her car. And when she gets home, I start taking her stuff in her house. She's got like broken house plants in there where they threw things out into the, you know, yard. And we, we make her a place in the basement. And here's this beautiful girl that a few years before I stood and conducted her wedding in, in her home church. And now she's, she's back home and she's got two little kids and she's down in the basement. And it's really not very nice down there. And the kids cry at night because they're, they're so upset. And my heart just breaks for them and she can't get the kids quieted down. And I go down in the basement and I lean over the little boy's crib and I say, you're going to be okay. I love you. Things are going to be okay. But when I walk back upstairs, I say, God, are things really going to be okay? Because this is not what I thought was going to happen. You need somewhere to go when the bottom falls out of your life and you face things you didn't think you would have to face, like all of us do. And here you find some beautiful, some beautiful ideas when you can't sleep or when you can't eat or when your heart beats fast or when you wonder if the promises of God are for other people and not you. Let me give you these seven things. Number one, see God in it. See God in it. See God in your trouble. Look at verse 17. And the Lord, what? The Lord, what? Verse 17. The Lord appointed, arranged. He, he arranged a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah could say, where did that come from? God sent the sea monster. Yeah, this is, 
In, in theology, we often express this by saying that is the sovereignty of God, meaning he's the king over everything and controls everything. You're going to see in the book of Jonah that God appoints things to happen all throughout this book. Even though it's a small book, it frequently talks about how God arranges things. The storm is arranged by God. The, the, the sea monster is arranged by God. Later on, he's going to arrange a scorching east wind, a gourd, a worm. Even those little things are arranged by God. This is a very important thing for us to understand when we hit bottom, and that is God is in this. This is sometimes called the providence of God. And sometimes people say there's a smiling providence, means God has arranged things and they seem really good right now. And then sometimes people say there's a frowning providence. That's when you're laying in bed at night and you can't sleep and you hear your little grandson crying downstairs and you wonder what to do. That's a frowning providence, but it is a providence. You've got to say, God, I believe you are in this. Notice that Jonah believes this, even though he's kind of a loser of a prophet, he says, you, you cast me in the deep. You cast me in the deep. Who cast him in the deep? Wasn't it the sailors who cast him in the deep? Do you see that? Jonah sees that God was in it. This was God's sovereignty. This was God's providence. Though the sailors cast him in the deep, he saw God in it. He said, your waves, in verse 3, and your billows have come over me. Super important to understand. When you go through a really hard time, always say, I, God, I, though it's a mystery to me, I believe you are in this. You're controlling this. Good will come from this. That is a very, very important thing. Sometimes God's mercies come to us in a severe way. Uh, Augustine, great you know, church father, he wrote his autobiography it's called Confessions. His autobiography is a very unique literary form. It takes the, it's a huge autobiography in the form of what? Does you know? The entire thing is in the form of a prayer. It's all him speaking to God. His entire autobiography in Confessions is, is and, he, and he lived a terrible sinful life and his mother prayed for him and then he miraculously came to faith and became a great leader in the church and he wrote his biography as a prayer. And at one point he says, God, you are, he basically says, you're chastising me. You're chastising me. You're not letting me get away with my sin. You're chastising me with guilt and you're chastising me with fear. You ever had this happen to you? I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. I can't sleep at night because I'm afraid. That's not good. God, well, Augustine said, no, that's good. He called it a severe mercy. Augustine called it a severe mercy. Jonah gets thrown into the deep and he's swallowed by a great fish that came from God. It's a severe mercy. You need to understand that all the mercies that flow into your life, not all of them are gonna come you know, in, a, in a really sweet, happy, joyful way. Sometimes they're gonna be severe. Sometimes the thing that God is allowing to happen to you is a good thing, but you can't see that it's a good thing. And you won't see that it's a good thing right now. And you may not even in your lifetime see that it's a good thing, but you must believe that God is in it. Do you see this? That's the first thing and it's a super important thing. You might think, and I often think, when I talk to campers and I'm speaking to children that have had terrible things happen to them, and they look you in the eye and they say, you know, if God is good and he's all-powerful, 
Why would he allow this terrible thing to happen to me? Why would God allow somebody he loves to get hurt so bad? And there are lots of ways that we could talk about that, but let me just suggest this one, and let's just take Jonah as an example. Here's Jonah in the belly of the fish. This would not have been like sipping coffee at Starbucks, right? You would be very uncomfortable. You're in the fish guts. It would have been smelly, painful, dark. It probably took a miraculous intervention for him to even breathe, right? But, but let's imagine now how long has, let's say that Jonah is a believer. Let's say that Jonah's been in heaven for thousands of years now. Let's say that we go to heaven and we meet Jonah. And we say to Jonah, how are you doing? He's like, I'm doing great. I mean, have you looked around? He, have you seen the food court here? This place is awesome. Yeah. We're like, Jonah, do you ever eat fish? Never mind. Just asking, you know. <laughs> what? Jonah doesn't walk by Jesus every 15 minutes and go, I'm so mad at you right now. The f- fish guts, that, that fish juice was stinging my eyes. He doesn't say that to him. Because like 10,000 years from now, don't you think that we're not going to be asking that same question 10,000 years from now in eternal bliss in the presence of the Lord? We're not going to be asking those same questions because the time and the quality of eternity washing over us. See God in your problem. That's number one. Number two, the others go faster. Cry out to the Lord. Duh. Cry, Cry out to the Lord. This is actually, should be kind of, naturally supernatural. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Keep that in mind. If you forget everything else about this sermon today, just remember the one thing that you want to take home is when you're in trouble, cry out to the Lord. The quicker you do it, the better. Learn to cry out to the Lord. This is what he did. Bible says in Psalm 50 and verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you and you will glorify me. Psalm 91, call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and I will honor him. James, the brother of Jesus said, if anybody is in trouble, he should pray. You think, wow, that's, that's not very profound. No, it's very, very simple. It's like children, you know, you, you say, say please, say thank you, say I love you. Yeah, that never gets old. Is there ever going to be a time in your life when it's not appropriate to say, please, I need something. Lord, help me. And then Lord, thank you. And then Lord, I love you, acknowledge you. Jonah wasn't willing to do this. And the kind of crying out to the Lord we're talking about here, and the scriptures talk about this a lot, is not just kind of a casual, ho-hum, traditional, like you're praying because it's a tradition, like you don't really mean it. It always bugs me. Can I say this? I don't want to be a crabby old guy, but it always bugs me when people get to the end of their prayers and they go, you're not praying amen. You know what I mean? You're not praying amen. Did you catch what I said? They're trying to say, in your name, I pray amen. Who is your? This is the king of the universe and you are slurring his name in your prayer. Can you like slow down a minute? He's the king of the universe. That's just my little pet peeve I wanted to share with you. I'm not talking about that kind of prayer where you go, hey, thanks for this, Lord, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, 
my daughter and I, Holly, was, was going with me to town. She's a little girl. We frequently would pray together. And we were going into Fredericktown, this little town, on a winter night. And there was just a little tiny bit of snow coming down. And so I didn't expect the roads to be so slippery. And I came to a little grade onto approaching a, 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 a busy highway. And the car started to slide into the intersection. And I go, Holly, pray. Holly goes, dear Heavenly Father, I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, like, pray, like, cry out, pray. It's like, we've kidded her about that for years. Like, sometimes you just can skip all the extra stuff and just cry out to God. My son Kyle was out on the West Coast and decided he's going to try uh, to surf. And so a guy gives him a surfboard. He gets out there. A wave knocks him off the surfboard, and he's tethered to the He's tethered to the board, and so that's a bad thing because the waves keep bringing the board back and hitting him in the head. He can't get back on the board. He's taking on water. He feels like he's going to drown. He said, Dad, the thing hit me in the head about six times. I was tethered to it, and it was my only hope if I was able to get up on that and cling to that board and paddle my way back in. But he said, I think one more mouthful of water, and I would have died. He goes, this is what went through my mind. He said, I want to get one. My wife was on the beach, and I wanted to, get a, a, I wanted to see my wife one more time before I drowned. I said, did you cry out to God? He goes, over and over again. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Desperate prayer. The Bible teaches desperate prayer. The Bible teaches this. The way the word is frequently used in the Old Testament, Korah, it means to cry out with a loud voice. In other words, when you pray, mean it. When you need something, cry out to God. So what, what do you do when you hit bottom? Number one, see God in it. Number two, cry out to God like you mean it. What if he doesn't answer you right away? Sometimes he's doing something and not choosing to answer you immediately. Remember Job, he's praying. Job is afflicted he's, by Satan. God is allowing Satan to afflict Job. And Job says in, in Job 23, it's like I can't see you anywhere, God. Did you ever feel this way when you prayed? Come on. Did anybody, come on, well, let's be honest. You want me to be honest with you, right? I want you to be honest with me. How many of you ever prayed and you thought, God, are you really answering me? Okay, come on, right? Most of us would have prayed that. Job felt that way. He's like, I'm praying and I'm not getting any answers. I, I listen to the TV evangelist. Every time he prays, people send thousands of dollars. When I pray, nothing happens, right? And so Job 23, behold, this is verse 8. I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I don't perceive him. I'm on the left hand, he's working, but I can't see him. He turns to the right hand, and I can't see him. Verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he's tried, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job, who's a godly man, says, even when I can't see him and he doesn't immediately answer me, I still know he can see me. And I trust him. So this is what you want to do. You say, sometimes I pray and it doesn't seem like he's answered me. Would that have ever happened to Jesus? It did, right? So Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. What is he praying? Let this cup pass from me. Meaning, if it's okay, I don't want to die and, be, and suffer and be tortured, right? So is that prayer answered? Yes and no. 
God doesn't give him, God doesn't give him that answer, but he answers with something he didn't ask for. He sends an angel to comfort him. This will happen to you. You will sometimes pray for something and you'll be sure it's what God wants for you and he will not give it to you. And he will send you something you didn't ask for. And you're like, what, what? You're like, you open a present at Christmas and go, I must have gotten somebody else's present. This can't be mine. I don't like this stuff. I didn't want this. I'll tell you what I wanted. But he knows better than you know. And that's why you trust him. Sometimes there's going to be a period of waiting for you. You're not going to cry out to the Lord, and he's, sometimes he will immediately answer you. But sometimes a, a great deal of time will pass. This is what it says in, uh, in the scriptures. In 1 Peter, um, it says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to eternal glory, in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. In other words, the Bible teaches that sometimes God will immediately answer your prayer for deliverance. And it teaches that sometimes he will give you something else than you asked for. And sometimes it will seem like God is silent, but all the time you should trust him. This is the way it teaches in the scriptures. Number three. So number one is what? See God in it. Number two is cry out to God. Number three is cultivate intimacy with the Lord. He says in verses four through six, he says, I'm driven away from your sight. I have weeds wrapped around my head. I'm down to the base of the mountains. If you follow the trajectory of Jonah, it's all down, down, down. I'll tell you something. When you run away from the Lord, you're always going to go down, down, down. And the worst part of that is your, your sense of intimacy with the Lord is broken. This is the one thing that you want to cherish above all other things, intimacy with the Lord. He says on a couple of occasions about the, the holy temple. And the temple is the place where God dwells. That's the idea. He says at one point, God says, hey, I want you to go here. He goes in the opposite direction, not caring about being near the Lord. But when he's in distress, he says, I miss being close to the Lord, feeling close to the Lord. So when you, the bottom falls out of your world, see God in it, cry out to God, and get close to God. Cultivate intimacy with the Lord. This is everything. In the garden, right, Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with the pre-incarnate Christ in fellowship and intimacy with him. And their whole life, you know, the flow of their life depended on like they, their intimacy with the Lord. And then sin came in and it interfered with their sense of intimacy with the Lord. And then the redemptive program comes back in, right, so that people can be restored in their intimacy with the Lord. The thing that's bad about sin is not just that bad things happen in your life, but that it interferes with your sense of intimacy with the Lord. What, is the, what makes hell hell? You won't have intimacy with the Lord there. What makes heaven heaven? He will be there. From the garden right to the new Jerusalem, what you have is the theme is intimacy with the Lord. This is how you're made. This is how God made you. God made, you think you were made like, you know, to eat, sleep, and all those things. Those were physical appetites that you have. But you have this powerful spiritual appetite for intimacy with God. And we can only have that through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us and to cultivate that intimacy. Have you figured this out as you're walking with the Lord? That it's usually times of trouble that heighten your intimacy with the Lord, right? Talking with a girl, young woman, and she says, I feel bad. 
I feel like sometimes I only pray when I'm in trouble. What if God said, the only way I can get that girl to talk to me is let her get in trouble? She never thanks me for the bird songs or the beauty of the flowers. I'm, just, I'm not saying he's that way, but the goodness of God leads to repentance. Here's what I am saying is that it, we should, everything in our world should contribute to our intimacy with the Lord. And anything that interferes with our intimacy with the Lord should be, should be something that we're very cautious and very, right, very concerned about at the very least. And so see God in it, cry out to God, cultivate intimacy with the Lord. Number four, anchor your hope in the gospel. This is embedded in this prayer in a pre-incarnate way. Incarnate means when Jesus comes in the flesh. I'm saying before Jesus comes. This is an Old Testament passage. But when he's in the fish guts and he's thinking about the temple, he's thinking about intimacy with the Lord, but he's also thinking about what the key thing that happens in the temple where, where the Ark of the Covenant is and the symbol of the presence of God and the mercy seat and the blood that's sprinkled on the mercy seat. To save you a lot of time, think about it like this. The temple is uh, the presence of the Lord. No human being could go into the presence of the Lord because of our sinfulness without being consumed. The only reason that we can go into the presence of the Lord is because God had an arrangement with Jesus that he would take the sacrifice of his life through his blood. And, and, and if we believe in him, then our sins are forgiven and we come into the presence of the Lord without our sin. And the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat was symbolic of that in the Old Testament. So Old Testament belief really was salvation was looking forward to the cross in a shadowy way. And New Testament belief is us looking back to the cross. Old Testament believers are saved by looking forward to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We're saved by looking back to the work of Christ on the cross. This is a great help when you're in trouble. What if I lose my house? Jesus still died for my sins and I have a home in heaven. What if I lose my marriage? God forbid. I still have intimacy with the Lord that can never be taken away from me. What if the worst thing happens and my life comes to an end? Then my eternal life begins. Why? Because of what Jesus did on Calvary. This is why we sing songs about the cross all the time. The gospel is the thing, right? That's the bedrock of our life. Let everything drive you back to the gospel. Root your life. Anchor your hope in the gospel. Jim Adamson was a deacon in a church I pastored, and he was a fine deacon. And he had a, a, a godly wife and kids that loved the Lord. And he was a thoughtful guy. I said to him one day, Jim, tell me how you came to know the Lord. He says, well, I had a DUI conviction. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I got drunk and I got pulled over by the police. I'm like, you did? He goes, yeah. I go, hmm, wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, I got pulled over by the police. He said, they gave me community service. And they assigned me to, this is fun, a Baptist church. He's like, can I go anywhere else? He's the, and of course, you know how Baptist pastors are, obnoxious people. He's out there, are you born again? And Jim Adamson, working at the Baptist church, came to know the Lord. Wasn't it good he got drunk? Well, okay, not exactly, but wasn't that a severe mercy? What wonderful things God has done when he takes the ugliest thing that we have and he lays it at the foot of the cross. What a redemption. What a buying back of something that's destroyed. That anchor your hope in the gospel. Number one, see God in it. Number two, cry out to God. Number three, 
get close to the Lord. Cultivate intimacy. Number four, remember the gospel. Anchor your hope in the gospel. Number five, worship and serve God alone. Jonah mentions idolatry there, if you notice that in He's calling out to the holy temple, verse 4 and verse 7. And then in verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Why does Jonah take aim at idolatry here? And here's why. you got to think, who's the original audience of the book? Who is the book written to? Who are the original recipients of the book? Here's the answer. Israel, northern tribes, okay? They've rebelled. They'd had a civil war. They created their own temple, their own worship. They had mixed idolatry in. God was sending prophets to warn them about having other gods besides God. And he gave them the Jonah story to help them see that the pagan sailors who were idolaters had the sense to call out to the God of heaven. And that later on, the people in Nineveh who are the worst kinds of pagans have the sense to repent and turn to God. And he's saying to Israel, would you please put away your idols, your God's substitute, and worship me. And we need to hear the same thing today. Because though you may not have, a, you know, like a physical carved idol, you do have things that interfere with your fellowship with God. I do, you do. We should always be looking at these things and willing to violently set them aside so that we only worship the one true God. And he alone has our heart. And you should do your own self-examination in your own soul about that. Worship and serve God alone because God sometimes will send us into a storm as what the Bible calls chastisement. It's not punishment like he wants to destroy us. It's like a loving discipline of a father that says there are some things I need to teach you because I love you and he does chastise us. Understand this. In Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 11 it says don't despise the chastening of the Lord. He's uh, he's treating you like sons and daughters, not like illegitimate children. And this is, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. You want chastisement in your life. You say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you stray from the Lord, you need for him, you need, to, you need for things to not go too well for you while you're running from God so that this doesn't become habitual with you and that you will forever run away from God and never find. You need to, so sometimes the, the way the Lord shows his love is through chastisement. This is what he did with, with Jonah. You worship and serve God alone. Number six, then you give him thanks. Look at verse nine. But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. It's interesting that it comes around to that now. Jonah's catching his breath and he's going, I got a lot of things to thank you for. Thank you for the fish. Thank you for the fish throwing up. You know, right? And thank you, love, praise you. So there, there, there it is. Keep it simple. Can you remember this? You should have please prayers. Please, Lord. Help me, Lord. Right? Cry out to God. Then you should have what? Thank you prayers. You, should, you do that a lot. Jonah's like, yeah, I got some stuff to thank you for. Hey, you have a lot to thank him for. That's one of the reasons you come to church. You say, I'm going to join with the other people that love you. And I'm going to say publicly, you're my God. I love you. I thank you. <laughs> and then that comes to the I love you prayers. Number seven, trust God to deliver you. Look at verse 10. And let him deliver you in the way he chooses the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry ground. You say, God will deliver you, but he'll deliver you his way. Yeah. I talked to my daughter Heidi, the one that fled the abusive marriage, you know. She's kind of the reason I'm here. Lois and I wouldn't even be here. 
because that, that kind of upended our whole ministry at our other church. It's really super sad, but not today. Today it's super happy. Like I was talking to my daughter last night. She says, you're welcome. <laughs> like, thanks a lot. Literally, she goes, you're, wel- you're welcome, Dad. I'm glad, that, glad it happened for you that way, that God would have put you in this church and that he would have given you the home that you have. And, and, the, and, and I, I said to her, so you must cry out to God a lot. She goes, I do, Dad. She said, one day I was so, I didn't want to tell you I didn't have any money. I didn't want to tell my brothers and sisters, you know, we have a deal in our family. If Heidi asks for anything, we, we just take care of her. We, you know, we all share and help. She said, um, I just hate doing that. I hate, I hate telling people that I need something. So I was driving my daughter to school one morning, and I just was crying out to God, and I didn't know what to say. So I just said, help me, Lord. 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 She said, I just couldn't think of anything else to say. So I just said, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Over and over again. She said, for a half an hour, I just said, help me, Lord. And then she said, you know what? Within an hour, he answered my prayer. And then she goes, you know what? That's crazy because I did it again today. She had a little table for sale. And little Cohen, our grandson, had a birthday coming up. And she's selling this table on eBay or Facebook or something. And, and she had it sold. lady was coming. But little Cohen sat in it and he broke it. And she said to him, well, now we can't get you a birthday present. You broke that. And he, he went to bed crying. And she went in to see him. And she said, what's wrong? And he goes, is it okay? I know I can't have a birthday present, but is it okay if I still have a birthday party? Well, we heard about that. We made sure Cohen had a birthday party and a present and everything. He's doing fine. But she said, yeah, just today, I talked to her yesterday. She said, just today, I, I said it again. I said, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And, and that table sold for $80 and the Lord provided for me. And then I said, did you tell him thank you? And she said, yes, I did. See, that's how it works. You say, help me, Lord. And then he helps you. And then you say, thank you, Lord. And you say over and over again, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Then what are you going to say forever? I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. 